I'm a functional naturopath in Perth, WA. This is a place where you can expand your knowledge on how to optimise your health and realise your full potential. We'll have cutting edge information with expert guests and having lots of fun along the way. Get ready to be empowered and motivated to reach your higher vitality and find your ultimate potential. Let's go! Revital Health is a proud member of the Health Optimization Network. Health Optimization Medicine and Practice is a 501c3 nonprofit on a mission to educate doctors and practitioners on how to optimize for health rather than treating disease. If you're interested in becoming a practitioner or donating, head over to homehope.org. Revital Health Clinic is the first and only of its kind exclusive health optimization clinic in Australia with state of the art technology, protocols, and personalized healthcare. Compounded medicines made specifically to your testing individualities. To find out more, head to revitalhealth.com.au. Our next guest on the podcast is the wonderful Dr. Kyle Gillette. He enjoys providing holistic, individualized care to his patients. His practice includes preventative medicine, aesthetics, sports medicine, hormone optimization, obstetrics, and infertility, integrative medicine, and precision medicine, including genomics. He believes that each human is a unique creation that requires attention to their body, mind and soul to achieve optimal health and he enjoys caring for others using shared decision making and an evidence-based patient-centered approach. We discuss so many things today, anti-aging, hormone optimization strategies, hair loss, menopause, PCOS, testosterone plus lots, lots more. So we hope you really enjoy this next podcast. All right, everyone, we have Kyle here all the way from the US and I'm so happy you're here and we're talking lots of different things today and we're just running through sort of our, our topics, um, but Kyle, welcome. Thank you, Jody. Pleasure to be here. So Kyle, firstly, tell me a little bit about your practice and how you got into being a family medicine specialist or preventative specialist or lifestyle medicine. It's something that um, a lot of doctors, I guess, in Australia, and I'm, I'm sort of talking our demographic here, um, don't really know much about it. So give us a bit of an understanding of how you got into it and what interests you. Absolutely. So I'm a medical doctor or an MD, which is the doctoral degree um, in the United States. And uh, in general, the reason why I got into it is because I was just really, really interested in it. Uh, my father is a family physician, and when I was growing up, when I was a teenager, even a preteen, I pretty much knew that I wanted to be a doctor, and I wanted to give holistic care. I wanted to care for people in a way that's more than just physical, in a way that can prevent the disease instead of um, treating the pathology or the disease. Mm. So I tailored my education thus. I went to a medical school that specifically emphasizes lifestyle medicine. I was active in the food as medicine group and the exercise as medicine group. Uh, through residency, I went to a full spectrum residency, the only one in a, a medium sized city. And they emphasized uh, mindfulness and other techniques other than medications that can help. Um, they also had a program called walk with a doc where you walked and you know you got some zone two cardiovascular exercise with your doctor and you could talk to them at the same time That's such a great so um, lots of those emphases have been important throughout my education i am board certified in family medicine and i'm board certified in obesity medicine the silent epidemic actually officially a silent epidemic according to the uh, united states government interestingly enough wow 
So uh, that's why I've uh, kind of gone that way. Um, and uh, the next thing to kind of get into after lifestyle medicine is hormone optimization and functional medicine, kind of addressing the root cause. So uh, subsequently, I got into those two things, and here I am. Wow, that's pretty impressive. That's um. So uh, let's let's firstly dive into then, I guess, how how you s scope out a new patient or client, as um sort of we call it here. Um, testing what you're looking for, intake forms. So let's sort of start right from the start. What what are you doing right from there? Kind of depends on the client. So just like if you go to a mechanic. And uh, some patients come in and they say, you know, my knee hurts. So that's a very vastly different workup. Or some patients come to me, I still practice obstetrics as well. So they say, I'm pregnant. So I say, all right, well, let's, let's chat. Let's uh, figure out how to deliver your baby as safely and naturally as possible for you and the baby. Mm -hmm. So a patient that does that um, is kind of like, you know, a patient hears a noise in the car that's happening and it goes to the mechanic. However, some patients come to me and they say, I want to perform cognitively as optimally as possible, or I want to perform athletically or physically as well as possible. Whether it's their body or their mind or their spirit, they want to have the best health in that realm or in all realms as possible. So that's kind of like someone who takes their car into the mechanic, maybe Formula One, whatever you want to call it. And they say, you know, I need a, a coach or a pit crew chief. And I want you to make my car the fastest car, or I want you to make my uh, computer like the best working computer or brain. Mm -hmm. So for those patients, I have uh, intake forms that are more tailored to that problem. And I use labs that instead of putting in codes for the insurance company to cover it, uh, you know, as good of a job that covering it might do. Um, instead, I use... Uh, you know, I go outside of insurance and I give the patient the best deal possible. One problem, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's important to a lot of people in developed countries. When you go outside of your general health system, your insurance company, your nationalized healthcare, whatever it is, a lot of times people are out to get you. So it's a service industry. And just like any other service industry, there's going to be hidden costs. So you want to be paying for your high quality medical oversight and advice and you don't really want to be paying hidden costs for your medications or your supplements or your diagnostics. The list goes on and on. Yeah. So um, yeah, we got a, on a little bit of a tangent there, but that's how I work up each patient individually. Yeah. So uh, I just, I think it's a great analogy. If you have a car that you want to perform well, you go to that type of mechanic. And if you have a problem, you go to a different type of mechanic. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great analogy. Um, and even the car in itself, that people think that, you know, going along their life and not having to service or look after their body uh, in, that, in that way, that's a great analogy because people really align with that when they think, well, I've, I've, my car's up for a service, so we have to go in to, to get that sorted, but never ever think that for their own bodies. And it's so important to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes my friends and family members remind me that not everybody has to be obsessed with health optimization. Some people call it biohacking. Some yeah. people call it athletic performance. Some people call it being brainiacs, whatever you call it. You don't have to be just like everybody who has a car doesn't have to be obsessed with it going fast. So it's okay. If you, you know, it's, it's an individual choice to have 
uh, to not see a doctor your entire life or to not see any sort of healthcare provider, nutritionist, dietitian, whatever, just like it's also your choice. If you want to drive your car without doing an oil change and see if it makes it 200,000 miles and just drive that beater into the ground, that is a hundred percent your choice. Um, I'm actually not a car person either, by the way, but, uh, yeah, that's the way I see it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, and I love the, the, the word health optimization and you know, being a part of the health optimization medicine and practice with Ted Achikoso, um, I We're hearing it a lot. We're, we're in it all the time and practicing in that is the detailed testing that we, um, that I use in my own practice with the compounding and things like that. So um, yeah, I, I love that the, the, the way that that's portrayed out into the world now. And it's, it's so true. We're optimizing health that we should to have greater longevity. All right, so let's dive a little bit into, um, can you give me a little bit of insight into the scope of testing that you use? So obviously bloods, urine, hormones, what do we look at? Do you use Dutch testing, all those sorts of things? Yeah, so you have your general tests, your blood tests, which are actually a lot more advanced than you'd think. Mm. Then you have your genetic testing. So you have uh, SNP, single nucleotide polymorphisms, you have full exome sequencing, um, so that you have a wide array of genetic testing. Then you have what I'd call specialty testing. Some people call it functional medicine testing. Just kind of depends, but it's essentially everything else. Mm. So you have uh, specialized allergy testing, which uh, it is a, a whole other topic. You also have Dutch testing, which you mentioned that's dried urine metabolites, essentially. So your hormones as they're broken down, or even if they're not broken down, as they're excreted in the urine. And then there's also saliva tests as well. So those are the Dutch tests. And yes, they're definitely applicable, especially when combined with other tests as part of a whole picture. It's not one of those things where, um, you know, sometimes genetic tests are nice because you can do it. And there's downsides too, because you might figure out you have something that gives you stress. But on the bright side, there's usually stuff that you can do about it. But it's nice because you can send it off and then you can find things that are often clinically applicable. You do have to apply them to each individual person, but at least you can, you can mostly use a computer to interpret a lot of it. Yeah. yeah. But with Dutch tests, it depends on when you get it, what time of your, of your cycle you get it, what time you get it in relation to taking medications or even to eating. Um, so it's a, a moment or a fragment in time, even if you get, uh, you know, six or eight different samples over the course of your 24 hour Dutch test. Yeah. So that's how I see Dutch tests. I do a lot of GI maps as well. Mm-hmm. I know Genova has a lot of, uh, functional medicine gut mapping. Yeah. And again, that's a moment in time. So it's nice because it shows not just your, uh, bacteria, it shows your fungi, your protozoa, um, yeah. So there's a lot more data. It shows you the amount of fat in your blood and the amount of enzyme that breaks down the fat in your blood. So I'm a fan of uh, gut testing. You know, it's our symbiote, so it makes sense to test it. Um, I'm a fan of yeah, even something like mitochondrial sequencing can be um, applicable in some people. Mm. So uh, yeah, I, I'd say if there's a test, I've, yeah. cons- I've considered ordering it and tried to consider when it's applicable to each individual situation. Exactly. And that's down to the medicines you prescribe, the you know, nutraceuticals that we prescribe, all the things that are down to that individual prescription of, of what person's you know, history needs, all that sort of stuff. So it is hard to, I know, but you know, getting a, a good scope of what's out there, I think is really nice for people to see what's possible. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's, let's dive into 
firstly, before we come away testing, what would be sort of the baseline foundational tests that you would recommend any person do? And how often would that be that you would be recommending people to do that? Yeah, so uh, talking about adults, there are several tests that pretty much everybody should do if they're interested in that preventative care. Mm -hmm. Think about these as analogous to your oil change. So, you know, pretty much everybody should get an oil change in their car. Yeah. You need to get a lipid panel. And if, you're, if you know your LDL is going to be high, you should probably include an oxidized LDL and also calculate uh, or measure directly even better your non-HDL cholesterol, mm -hmm. APOA1, APOB, and LPA. But if your uh, lipid panel is fine, then just getting a routine lipid panel, as long as everything is going to be normal, is okay to do. Mm -hmm. I think everyone should have a CRP, which is your C-reactive protein. It's known as an acute phase reactant, which basically means that when you're inflamed, it spikes up. Yeah. So uh, keeping those below one and especially below 0.5 mm -hmm. uh, is optimal. So CRP would be the next one. A yeah. CBC is your white blood cells, your red blood cells, your platelets. Platelets are actually another acute phase reactant. Mm -hmm. And then uh, another important one is your CMP. So that's your complete metabolic panel. Those are your liver enzymes, your kidney enzymes, your electrolytes. Mm -hmm. So that's an important test to get. Mm -hmm. Past that, it kind of depends if you're male or female. Pretty similar hormone testing. Uh, you can still get FSH and LH for both. Uh, for men, it doesn't matter as much what period of the cycle you are at, but uh, there is some more variation. But pretty much everybody should get a testosterone and an estradiol, which is the most active form of estrogen. Mm -hmm. uh, possibly an SHBG, an A1C as well. So an A1C is basically your blood glucose average over the past three months, and then a fasting insulin. So that's uh, the high yield tests. These tests, if you order them out of pocket, would probably be probably $50, $60 if you order them out of pocket. And about once a year, around age 30 or so, it's good to get every other fasting and non-fasting, and really you should probably do twice a year. So every six months, get a fasting and a non-fasting, look at low tide and look at high tide. Yep, yep, okay, yeah, that's good. And for those in Australia, um, you know, sometimes we can get these tests through doctors and we, we've got sort of a system Medicare here. So we can get some of these if we find the right doctor. Um, and the CBC is actually a FBC here. So we call it a full blood count. So it's just slightly different terminology for those catching up on that. Um, all right, I want to jump into hormones. So talk to me a little bit about, firstly, actually testosterone. Now, what's your opinion on where the levels are going? Because I'm seeing them decrease in males in my clinic. Um, and, and why, if that's what you're seeing, why is that? And then I also want to talk to you about the link, because I know you've spoken about this before with cortisol. So maybe give us a bit of a round on the, on the testosterone. Yeah. So as far as testosterone for both men and women, it's particularly important. Even in women, almost all women have more testosterone unit per unit because the units are different. I'm not sure what they are in Australia, but usually it's picograms per mil for estradiol and then nanograms per deciliter. But unit per unit, women actually have more testosterone than estrogen and more DHEA or dehydroepiandrosterone than both of those two. Mm. So um, quite important. Testosterone also aromatizes to cause peripheral estrogen in yeah. women and actually men too. That's how men get most of it. But as far as the uh, decreasing units, there's a lot of reasons. Essentially, it's a war from all fronts or death by a thousand needles. Mm. So 
there's a lot of things like insulin resistance that is a huge contributor to dropping testosterone levels. When you have metabolic syndrome, your total testosterone drops because you have hyperinsulinemia, high glucoses, and also usually high estrogens. Mm -hmm. And um, it, yeah, it can lead to a decreased total testosterone. Usually your free testosterone is a little bit higher and your SHBG is low, but metabolic syndrome and also it's the sleep apnea that is subsequent to it. If I had to pick the usual suspects, those are your two main offenders, sleep apnea, metabolic syndrome. Past that, there's a lot of other reasons, depleted boron levels in the soil, endocrine disruptors, microplastics, epigenetics, even the shortening of, or the lengthening of CAG repeats in the androgen receptor gene. Men only have one of it. And uh, essentially men are very slowly becoming more and more androgen insensitive, um, which is kind of scary and strange, but it's, it's not really going to be clinically significant for thousands of years. Yeah. The most... Uh, Egregious example, I suppose, is a pathology known as androgen insensitivity syndrome, or AIS, mm -hmm. where someone who's XY can actually uh, phenotypically be female because the androgen receptor uh, protein mm -hmm. does not work at all. So it doesn't even detect the androgens. And those individuals can actually have quite high testosterone and be quite tall as well, but be phenotypic females. Yeah. So there's a spectrum of that too. Yeah. So uh, a lot of reasons behind the decreasing testosterone levels in men and women. In women, another important one is high SHBGs secondary to uh, a lot of times oral contraceptive pills. Yeah. And that very strong synthetic estrogen is going to act all hepatically on the liver and cause high SHBG and very low or even undetectable fairly often levels of free testosterone. Mm, yeah. It's so important to realize the links there, isn't it? It's a matrix of hormones. My goodness. Yeah. Um, as, so, as, what, what, sorry, you go, Kyle. <laughs> I was going to say that was, a, that was a long answer to the first part of that question. The link between right. testosterone and cortisol is multifold. Yeah. Um, one of the links is cortisol spikes kind of similar at a similar time mm -hmm. than testosterone, which is actually in the morning. They're both kind of the opposite of melatonin. But cortisol is a glucocorticoid. So it actually helps with uh, muscle protein degradation instead of muscle protein accrual. And instead of causing, uh, so you have less lean body mass and you tend to have body fat retention. It's mm. a state of stress. So the two are somewhat antagonistic in other ways as well. Mm -hmm. So firstly, you know, what, what do we do about testosterone lower, like, you know, levels lowering overall? But also, is there a connection with, say, men and women exercising, optimizing these testosterone levels, particularly, like we'll go into the female hormones in a minute, but I talk to my clients a lot about exercise timing um, because I feel like it's really important for them to optimize themselves, not only for their cycle, but also for hormone building and also looking after cortisol. So what are your recommendations around that? Um, recommendations around uh, exercise timing or hormone op or testosterone optimization in general or both? Well, both, I guess there's two questions yeah, there, both. but yeah, testosterone, yeah. you know, what do we do about it? And then exercise, yeah. where do we go for that? They kind of go hand in hand. So the way I think about testosterone optimization is exactly that, not testosterone boosting um, when you're not on hormone replacement and you're making it endogenously. Yeah. 
one of the analogies that I make, and I'm not sure if they have these groups in Australia or if there's like a bad stigma about them. It's kind of so-so in America, but it's like if you're in college and you want to get into a sorority or a fraternity. Mm-hmm. So they, uh, if, if there's a member that doesn't want you in, they give you a black ball. And even if all the other ones love you, you get that one thing that's working against you and you're not going to get in. Mm-hmm. So testosterone, both for men and women, is kind of like that. Mm-hmm. If you, you can optimize your, uh, you know, vitamin D as much as you want and your vitamin D can be perfect. It can be high, normal, uh, optimal, um, not even just normal, but, uh, you know, that, that one thing is not going to bring you up if there's something else that's holding you back. Yeah. So whether it's a medication that's holding you back or whether it's, uh, just poor luck or genetics or a tumor, mm-hmm. there's you, if they're, if you're deficient or hypogonadal, whether you're a male or a female, then it's important to identify what that is that's holding you back. Okay. Yeah. Very, very good point. So the link with exercise then, what do you recommend? Is there a special time that women and all men should be doing their exercise to help with any hormones, I guess we can talk about others as well. Yeah. So any timing of exercise is better than none. A very common reason for not getting, uh, you know, not having optimal testosterone is just not enough exercise in general. They've done a lot of studies. Uh, the Mayo Clinic had an excellent article a little less than a year ago in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings Journal, and they talked about uh, specific exercise interventions. They talked about HIT. They talked about zone two cardiovascular training, and they talked about resistance training. As you age, resistance training actually gets more and more important for testosterone optimization. And in general, uh, the effect of high intensity interval training, if you overtrain, it's basically easier to overtrain if you do high intensity intervals, which can actually decrease your testosterone. So uh, it goes hand in hand as well with caloric restriction. If you're also in a caloric deficit and you're restricting calories or even intermittent fasting. Uh, for example, if you're intermittent fast until 2 PM every day, mm-hmm. then exercising first thing in the morning is not going to be as helpful. So depending on your fasting window and when you're having caloric restriction, you want to time your exercise near, but not right before or right after, um, caloric intake. So, uh, if you're a professional athlete and you don't have like time constraints or social duties. A lot of them will uh, fast a little bit in the morning, eat a brunch, and then uh, exercise around midday, and then eat a meal a little bit after that as well, and then not eat late in the evening. So they still have a decent, you know, 14 hour caloric restriction or intermittent fasting window, mm-hmm. but they still get in nutrients both before and after exercise. Yeah, yeah. And good point with the exercise too. I think any exercise is better than none for most people. <laughs> so, good call on that one. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. There's a lot of other variables with that too. So yeah. if you're specifically trying to leverage like the, the last little bit of fat loss, this is most applicable for bodybuilders, fitness models, et cetera. Mm. Then uh, you can leverage things like L-carnitine or uh, things to increase lipo- lipolysis. Yeah. That way you can get that last little bit, but that's a pretty niche scenario. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I, I think I've got so many things I need, I need to dive into um, with you that we probably have to do another one <laughs> because I really want to dive into the obesity and obesity medicine with you because that's fascinating. Um, we don't really have any specialists here in Australia doing that in medicine. 
um, you know, as, as in that form um, you know, wholly. So that's a very interesting um, area in itself. So let's just dive in to complete that, the female hormones. So estrogen, progesterone, um, you know, huge topics I know, but generally what are you seeing in, in your clinic? When, what are you seeing, um, you know, in terms of treatment? I'm seeing a lot of fertility issues. I'm seeing a lot of menopause issues with women with their symptoms, you know, really trying to manage that is, is tricky. What are you finding? You know, talk me through some of those things. Definitely. So uh, female hormones are pretty much the same as male hormones, but in different uh, balances or levels or ratios. So you have your estrogens, you have your progestogens, mostly progesterone, pregnenolone, and then you have your androgens, uh, testosterone, DHEA is a very weak one. Um, when most, most of the time when a woman walks in, if you, if there's like a, a avatar, if you will, your general, um, patient, a lot of times they're estrogen dominant. A lot of times they have PCOS. I see a lot of them with PCOS. Mm -hmm. um, even in the general population, it's probably around 20 to 25, maybe even 30%. Mm -hmm. Most people just don't have it. So uh, PCOS is polycystic ovarian syndrome. It's where you have uh, at times androgen dominance so that androgen, it doesn't necessarily mean your androgens are high. It just means that they are dominant over your estrogens or progestogens. And then insulin resistance and anovulatory cycles. So a cycle that's longer than 35 days or nine or less per year. Mm. Uh, oligomenorrhea is what um, that is. Anovulatory cycles is where you're not ovulating during the cycle. So yeah, the, the oligomenorrhea is where you have the delayed periods. Mm. So uh, both of those things are very common. And a lot of times they go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of natural things and lifestyle medicines that you can do to help that. But a lot of those women come in initially to see me for fertility reasons because they're having those anovulatory cycles. They're not having that progesterone spike around day 21, 22. They're not having uh, a very big LH spike around mid-cycle. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times their FSH to LH ratio is off as well. Yes. So that's kind of a, a usual patient. A lot of times they get started on um, a combination of the six pillars, diet, mm -hmm exercise, which we've already talked about to some degree, yeah. sleep, sunlight, stress, and spirit. And uh, after doing those two things, I write prescriptions for them too. I carry on my prescription pads for all those. All those. Um, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of times I get started on supplements. So a lot of them will ask me about something that's, uh, it's called inositol. There's two main types of it. D-chiroinositol is more of an anti-androgen, kind of helping with that uh, first criteria. And then myo-inositol is an insulin sensitizer. It's a type of B vitamin, which is a somewhat, uh, biohackers might find inositol particularly interesting. Microdosing lithium can deplete levels of inositol in the brain. So um, if you're a biohacker that's doing that, it might be a, an extreme benefit for you from multiple vectors. Very interesting. So a lot of times they get started on that supplement. Many times I'll talk to people about the positives or negatives of berberine. If they're pregnant, then they really shouldn't be on berberine, but there's many different positives and negatives. A lot of people ask me about metformin, which is kind of the most commonly prescribed medication for uh, a lot of really a lot of things now. Yeah. Um, and again, there's a lot of risk and benefits to that as well. Yeah. So that's kind of a standard workup of my general avatar patient. Yeah, yeah. So just um, PCOS fascinates me. Um, why do you think a large percentage of the population has PCOS? Like, have you thought about this from that sort of an evolutionary sense? Have you sort of ponder? I do. I ponder all the time. I'm like, hey, what's going on here? You know, <laughs> why? Why is yeah. this happening? 
Yeah. So let's address uh, nature first and then kind of nurture after that because it's, it's both. Yeah. Um, nature wise, there is genetic components as well. So you can check your genetic polymorphism and just see how likely you are to have PCOS. There's also epigenetic. So like methylations, deacetylations. If you look at the androgen receptor of people with PCOS, the one that is inactive is usually the one that is less sensitive. So some of that androgen dominance is actually just at the receptor level um, because essentially the, their gene that would uh, cause less androgen dominance and, uh, and ovulatory cycles mm. is methylated. So uh, it, you know, the RNA can't get to it to actually transcribe that gene. Yeah. So um, that, that's kind of the genetic and epigenetic causes mm. as far as the lifestyle causes or the nurture causes. A lot of it is, food intelligence, which people are uh, becoming more and more apt with. So knowing what to eat, um, knowing what is truly healthy, maybe not the processed food that has green leaves all over it. Uh, maybe it's the whole food. And uh, the phobias of certain things definitely contributes. Phobias of fats, phobias of sugars, yeah. phobias of uh, plants, phobias of not plants, phobias of meats. So there's a lot of different things that contribute. But at the end of the day, um, an individualized diet plan is going to help the most. Yeah. Um, appetite dysregulation. And then also a huge one that is uh, very comorbid with PCOS and subfertility is mental health. Mm, yeah. So many aspects to that, you know, the, the weight gain, the, you know, not, not being able to get pregnant. There's so many things to do with the mental health with women. Yeah. With the PCOS. Okay. So before we come away, because I want to dive into diet soon, <laughs> and then a few other things before we come away from that, though, I wanted to talk about menopause and hormone replacement therapy, because that also fascinates me. Um, and I want to hear your take on that and how you support clients, patients through menopause. And what do you use hormone replacement therapy and do you like it? So yes and yes. Uh, <laughs> again, this is one of those things that has the individualized approach. Yeah. Hormone replacement is, has always been a hot topic. Yes. There's far more benefits and side effects than most people realize. We could talk about them for hours. Maybe at some point we will, but um, the benefits for one specific person's hormone replacement versus the detriments, um, if your benefits outweigh the detriments, then hormone, you might be a good candidate for hormone replacement. However, this shifts all the way throughout your life and it can change at any time. Yeah. So it's an estimation and I call it shared decision-making. The patient and I talk about those benefits and how they probably will shift and what the likelihood of those benefits and risk shifting are. Mm. In general, the younger your chronologic age or the younger your cellular age, whatever you want to look at it, but in general, the younger your age, the more time you have after menopause, to develop osteoporosis, to develop cardiovascular disease from low estrogen. Yeah. And also theoretically, this one's not as well known, dementia. Mm. So if you're going to, mm. yeah. So a lot of the benefit has to do with front loading your hormone replacement, yep. having a nice slow decline, kind of like andropause, like a lot mm. of men have, mm. and to decrease that risk without increasing your other risks significantly. Yeah. And so do you use, so in terms of, you know, specifics, test, what sort of um, you know, the testing, is there specific tests that you're using 
to monitor those, you know, damaging estrogens, you know, and, and tracking clients. And then are you using bioidentical hormones? Are you, is there specific hormones that you go for over others? Yeah, um, I do a lot of blood tests. Yeah. Uh, if the patient still has cycles, then uh, a lot of times, depending on what they're looking for, mm -hmm. I'll test them throughout certain times. At times, as mentioned, I will do Dutch tests. Yeah. So those are potentially applicable as well. Mm. Um, yeah. As far as uh, what hormones I use, 99.9% .9 of the time, bioidentical hormones. Yeah. Um, I'm not in the camp that literally everyone should be on testosterone but it depends on what your adrenal glands are doing. Mm -hmm. So people are familiar, you have menopause, you have andropause, kind of like male menopause, but you also have adrenopause. That's where your zona reticularis, mm -hmm. it's a area in your adrenal gland right on top of your kidney. Some women produce a lot of hormone, including DHEA and testosterone from that uh, after menopause. And those women tend to not have as many uh, symptoms of low T as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, some so women produce good. very, very little and they have a profound effect. I just had a patient last week, uh, patients often that are women that have great benefit from either DHEA or testosterone or both. Yeah. Because would you go then for DHEA first over testosterone, testosterone to, to support women to see how that impacts testosterone or you sort of go in both depending on the levels? It depends on the level. Yeah. If their testosterone is very, very low, your body does convert some DHEA to testosterone mm. um, in both men and women. But if the levels are very low and the woman is symptomatic, a lot of times I'll use a testosterone cream. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Often, often topically where they might need it the most or want it the most. Yeah. So in functional medicine, I've heard this spoken, spoken about in terms of how long you stay on bioidentical hormones after menopause. So sort of first year menopause, and then they're saying, you know, I, I know this varies a lot with between people, but sort of 10 years is sort of where you're looking at replacing hormones. Is that where you think is the best sort of timing? 10 years is, uh, I would say that's the median time, but a lot of women don't start early enough. Yeah. Um, if you're going to, the earlier, the better, essentially. Mm. But if you're not going to, um, sometimes... Uh, like you, sometimes the window's kind of missed where those yeah. balances have already shifted. But uh, I have patients that are in their early thirties with um, POI or premature ovarian insufficiency. Yeah. And also with the history of family history of osteoporosis and early cardiovascular disease. And those patients, maybe they'll be on for 25 plus years. Yeah. Yeah. Probably so. With careful monitoring. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So now hormone replacement therapy, we've got different ways of consuming this or applying this. Best ways, do you find, you know, creams over, I know this Henry, um, her, is it Hertog? Hertog um, talks about different applications. Uh, you know, you've got trochees, you've got creams. What do you tend to go towards? For men, I tend to go towards subcutaneous administration mm. of testosterone. Mm. Um, it's less likely to cause polycythemia. So your hemoglobin, hematocrit, your red blood cells, the thickness of your blood does yeah. not spike up as much because there's not that erythropoietin spike yeah. secondary to high level of free androgens. Mm -hmm. It also does not depress your SHBG quite as much. Mm -hmm. Some men who have really low SHBGs do benefit from topical administration or even very long preparations like a undecanoate ester which has 11 carbons instead of uh, seven or eight with an incipient eight. Mm. 
So it kind of depends on the situation, but in general for men, I'm a fan of subcutaneous administration, um, more frequent than most people okay. uh, recommend. You know, some patients I have on uh, undecanoate and they uh, take it very infrequently. Some patients I have taking daily administration uh, actually. Yeah. Um, but usually it, it's, uh, the average would be about twice a week for men. For women, um, if they're able to do a patch or a cream of estrogen, in general, I prefer that just because it's lower risk of uh, venous thromboembolism, which is VTE. It's a, pretty sl- it's a pretty slight risk. It's actually about the same risk as if they would have taken an oral contraceptive. However, women tend to take oral contraceptives in younger ages when they're less likely to get a blood clot in general. So, you know, it's not a huge risk. And I do have plenty of patients on oral estrogen. A lot of times when I say stuff like this, my patients will listen. And then the next conversation will be um, the benefits of, you know, obviously there's a lot of benefits to taking a tablet as well. Mm -hmm. So um, many people are very happily on estradiol or biased tablets. So yeah, that's one way to think about estrogen. As far as testosterone for women, there's a huge amount of variation in who benefits. So I have all sorts of administrations across the board for uh, female testosterone administration, but unless the, unless there is like uh, significant symptoms and congruent levels, whether it's blood tests or Dutch tests, then I'm, I usually wait to start testosterone in women until they've already started everything else. Because when you start the testosterone, it's going to throw off literally everything else. So it's going to throw mm-hmm. off your estrogen because okay. um, it's aromatizing to some degree as well. Of course. So there's a lot of things to think of. Um, I've also seen a lot of women that have virilization, whether it's like hirsutism or hair growth or their voices changed and they didn't even realize it until they listened to like videos of each other yeah. um, year or two. So a, a lot of the time, uh, women are hesitant to restart or to continue things because they notice that they have some of that virilization or masculinization yeah. and a lot of it's reversible. So if you get, get on a correct regimen for you, you yeah. might be on the exact same regimen as your friend too, but it just might not be right. Um, I'm a big fan of checking a sex hormone binding globulin because yeah. it very, very strongly binds androgens, especially DHT. Mm. So if you start very low, then you're probably at higher risk of virilization. If you start very high, you're probably at higher risk of venous thromboembolism. A high SHBG and high platelets is kind of correlated with that. Mm. So uh, can't answer that question great for women, but uh, there's a lot of good ways that very you can administer hormones. Yeah. Again, down to the point that it's very individual and this is why we need to do it right. Yeah. 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 Alrighty, so um, just a little bit more on hormones and you mentioned DHT. I want to talk about hair loss because this is huge at the moment. Well, a lot of hair loss. Yeah, um, hair loss was uh, one of the first things that I really got interested. Before I was a doctor, I, was, uh, I used to cut and color hair for fun. But, uh, you probably can't tell. I used to have, I used to have long hair and I always, I always colored my own and stuff too. But yeah, so I've always been into aesthetics and uh, been into hair as well. So I see a lot of people for hair loss prevention okay. and also post-hair transplant as well. So I guess that is still hair loss prevention. Yeah. The way I explain it is you have your androgenic alopecia and then you have everything else. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of different other reasons of hair loss, whether it's fungal or bacterial or telogen effluvium, which a lot of times is your thyroid or your iron, Mm. or even just scalp thinning, but that's all over here. And in general, this is treated with 
um, either improving the blood flow to your head or improving the growth factors in your scalp, of which there are many ways to do that. Uh, PRP does both, by the way, but there's a lot more other ways than just getting PRP that you can use to help, that you don't have to regularly go in and continue to get it. However, if you're having any androgenic alopecia, whether you're male or a female, by the way, if you're a female and you have very low number of CAG repeats on your androgen receptor genes, then you're way more likely to have androgenic alopecia. And you're a better candidate for uh, five ARs, even natural ones like curcumin, black pepper, salt palmetto, et cetera. But over here, you have your androgenic alopecia. And in here, this is, gets a little bit trickier because this is where you run into the side effects. This is where people talk about uh, finasteride, dutasteride. Two of the excellent hair loss docs, in my opinion, quite evidence-based are from Australia. I think they're just called the hair loss docs on YouTube. There you go. But, cool. Yeah. <laughs> they, have, they have some good info as well. But uh, if you're having androgenic alopecia, basically you have to address this because you can take as many growth agonists as you want. But if you don't address the androgenic component, then you're still going to have miniaturization and eventual follicle death. And the stem cell from the hair follicle will uh, exit. It'll leave and it won't come back after a few months. Yeah. It is normal when you start most hair loss supplements or medications to have a bit of a shed mm -hmm. because they essentially jettison the old hairs and then that same cell that's still alive grows a new hair. So it goes antigen, catagen, telogen. So it kind of jettisons the telogens and then it has some healthy new antigens that come up and um, it'll take a couple months, it'll take a month or two and then it'll look significantly better. Okay. There are lots of, so the most promising treatments, mm. dutasteride mesotherapy, that's where you take dutasteride, the very strong inhibitor and inject it dermally, almost like getting a, a TB test. Mm. If they do the skin test there, I don't know. Mm. But uh, Essentially, you can get that injected just where you need it and it doesn't go systemic. They're also going to make more uh, solutions and foams with dutasteride in the future. And there's also topical antiandrogens that are FDA approved for androgenic acne. The name here is Win Levi or Clascoterone. It's essentially a safe cousin of RU58841, which I don't believe has any known safety profile. So that's a pretty scary one and I wouldn't use it. Yeah. But there's a lot of options for androgenic alopecia. Okay. And the medications um, you, you mentioned before, you concerned slightly to, uh, what's the word? Yeah, hormone, de de decreasing hormones, a, a little bit with men. So um, what do you sort of do with that, with the balancing? Um, as far as, uh, sorry, you were asking as far as the balancing of hormones specifically for, in for the medication. So if you're giving medications for, um, you know, alopecia, uh, is there an implication with other, you know, testosterone hormones, it, it, side effects for men, you know, are, are we, are we concerned? Yeah. Um, <laughs> finasteride syndrome is, I assume that's, uh, what most people would think of when it comes to hair loss medicine side effects. Mm. So, uh, you know, depression, mood disorders, erectile dysfunction, loss of libido, basically hypogonadal symptoms. Mm. Some men are very, very sensitive to where they need the DHT to be very androgenic to drive things. And some men note, it, some of it has to do with their CAG repeat number, but not all of it. A lot of it just has to do with uh, what they've become accustomed to over their lifespan. It also has to do with a few things, their ratio of testosterone to estrogen, which matters for a lot more other things other than just gynecomastia risk. It also has to do with their 
starting free testosterone. Mm -hmm. So if their free testosterone is also low, then it can't really accommodate for the loss of loss of DHT, the lower DHT. Mm. Because at the end of the day, you can have a DHT much, much lower, but testosterone still binds the androgen receptor, uh, you know, decently enough. So it's kind of accounting for that lower DHT. Mm. That's definitely a risk. There's some evidence that five alpha reduced progestogens play a part as well. So like five alpha, three alpha pregnenolone, or sorry, progesterone, which is allopregnanolone. Um, there's a medicine that we give ladies with postpartum depression, and it's essentially a bioidentical form of that. It's called Zul Ressa. And we just IV it in the hospital and it uh, helps cure postpartum depression. So that helps with sleep and also with mood as well. So it's possible that also plays a component in finasteride syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So do you avoid it? And if you don't avoid it, what do you do for those sorts of symptoms? In patients at risk, I avoid it because they're almost inevitably going to stop it. Um, Most eugonadal men or men on TRT are able to tolerate some sort of 5-alpha reductase inhibition. Mm -hmm. Okay. Whether it's topical or oral. Topical finasteride is interesting because some of it does go systemic because of its size in kilodaltons. So... Um, they will very slowly notice it systemically if they notice it at all. Um, but yeah, I, I, I never avoid five alpha reductase inhibitors in general. I think a lot of men are good candidates for them. And in general, women don't need that strong of an anti-androgen. Yeah. Okay. And so coming off that, coming off those medica- medications um, or medicines, what do you recommend people? Because some people find out about this and then they come off it and then let you get told that the hair will just fall straight back out again. (laughs) Is that true? (laughs) So when it comes to your uh, anti-androgens, any benefit that you've derived there, you keep. So it's not going to magically keep working when you stop it. But if you stop something like finasteride or dutasteride or clascoterone, then, or even a a spironolactone, ketoconazole, there's a lot of weak anti-androgens. Um, then you're going to keep whatever benefit you've had, if any. Yeah. However, if it's a growth agonist, it depends on which one. Minoxidil is a common one. So we mentioned those three phase, antigen, catagen, telogen. Mm-hmm. Minoxidil prolongs that uh, catagen phase, especially if you have about 50% of people genetically respond to it, depending on their sulfur transferase gene. Yeah. But if you do respond to it, then that catagen phase is very long. Mm-hmm. Let's say a normal hair lives 80 years. Minoxidil makes it live 120 years. So everybody between 80 and 120 will die off. But if that follicle is not dead, it'll come back and reincarnate as a uh, one-year-old newborn antigen follicle. So you notice a big shed when you have that shortening of a lifespan of your hair, when you stop many growth agonists. Okay. All right. Fascinating. So we need to stand on our head to get more (laughs) circulation in there. And monitor hormones and nutrients, obviously, you know, thyroid and um, iron. So, yeah. And that's men and women both differently with, with hormonal um, applications and things that we need to do there. So it's a big topic. And, and it's it, all these aesthetic type topics really mean a lot to people. And we mentioned mental health before and you know, skin conditions, hair loss. It really makes someone's life that little bit more stressful or a lot more stressful. So that's why I think we see a lot of that. Well, I do anyway, because it's the first thing that brings them to, to you to optimize their health because they want to fix that. 
Yeah. There's a saying, look good, feel good. And there's actually a lot of truth to that saying. And there's actually been scientific studies done on it of uh, just, you know, how people are feeling and what their labs look like on days that they think that they look good. And there's also a lot of truth to um, stubbornness, if you will. So there's also another saying, too stubborn to die. <laughs> and that's that uh, motivation that no matter what, you will make it through. Yeah. So um, some people will add like gratitude practices and they'll talk about you know, your social health and your family and friends support structure. And a lot of that gives you that stubbornness. And those people do have better outcomes. Yeah, I totally agree. I've noticed that. And I'm particularly stubborn myself. So I've also noticed that. <laughs> now, yeah. I do want to dive into diet. But firstly, anti-aging really fascinates me. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about peptides. Um, and you know, anti-aging is a huge topic again. But I just sort of want to scratch the surface here. There's a lot of, you know, David Sinclair is doing a lot of work in that area. There's a lot of different supplements that are coming out. There's resveratrol, there's NMN, there's the peptides, there's the telomere, there's the testing. There's so much out there on this. And, you know, briefly, it's huge lifestyle components. And we know this, there's caloric restriction. Where are your go-tos in, in terms of anti-aging support for people? You know, what's sort of the starting point and where you're looking at to go from there? Yeah. So one way I see aging is you have pathologic aging. That's definitely a disease. You have optimal aging, very slow aging. We don't really know what optimal aging is because everybody's somewhere in between. A lot of people are actually over here, but maybe optimal aging is 150 or 200. Uh, David Sinclair's pretty right. He seems like a pretty smart evidence-based guy to me, but it's really hard to get over here because there's so many things that you're trying to optimize your biggest bang for the buck when it comes to both, uh, you know, taking out, uh, amyloid plaques, tau tangles, also cardiovascular health, health of the endothelial cell, uh, which lets you continue to have, you know, normal nitrix and vasodilate normally, and also health of the mitochondria. You have, again, your caloric restriction. If you're able to do so, even if it's every once in a while, the law of diminishing returns, even a bit of caloric restriction will help over time. That's going to help your sirtuins. In addition, your zone two cardiovascular exercise is particularly helpful. Um, that's essentially like building your engine or building your mitochondria, your powerhouse of the cell. You not only have more engines, like a three engine Tesla, you also have a bigger engine as well. And then your sleep. So specifically your REM sleep really helps with your mitochondrial health. So when you're mitochondria healthy, you're able to um, make energy. They're the powerhouse of the cell. So first and foremost, you need to have big, healthy engines. The NMN, or um, think of it as your fuel. Yeah. Your NMN converts to NAD, mm -hmm. and NAD helps make ATP. CoQ10 comes in, and that's the coenzyme that actually helps make the ATP. That's essentially powering your cell. Mm, mm. creatine is kind of like a reserve fuel tank. So uh, creatine is an extra phosphate donor, creatine phosphate to make more ATP for a reserve. Mm -hmm. And then L-carnitine is the shuttle that takes it across from your fuel tank into the mitochondria itself. So it takes it across the membrane. Um, so that's why L-carnitine palmitoyl coenzyme A is important as well. So there's a lot of things at play. 
But before worrying about if you have race fuel, your NMN, before worrying about if you have an optimal fuel pump, your L-carnitine, or even a reserve fuel tank, your creatine, you got to worry about your REM sleep, your uh, caloric maintenance or restriction, depending on your situation, and then your zone two cardio. Mm. Quickly touching on REM sleep, actually, because this has been something I've been thinking about a lot lately and trying to look into a lot of different ways to increase REM sleep. What's your best hack or tip on increasing REM sleep for the clients? Yeah, uh, not too much alcohol, super close to bed, not too much food, super close to bed, enough cholinergic function. So as you age, um, cholinergics are more and more important. Some, some sleep supplements actually have cholinergics in them. Um, I'm not in the camp that recommends nicotine for everybody for cholinergic function, but it would probably make your REM sleep pretty good. Um, but, uh, yeah, in, in general, you think about, uh, having the, I, there's a 10, three, two, one rule. I'm not sure if Ben Greenfield came up with it. Um, not that I endorse everything, but, um, you know, it's a good rule within 10 hours. Um, not too much caffeine before sleep, but not to affect your adenosine too much. It kind of like artificially, um, modulates your adenosine, uh, function. And then within three hours and two hours, then no exercise and food. And within one hour, no bright white or bright blue light or screens. And then zero is zero snooze in the morning. That way you have a nice regular rhythm. Mm. If you have shift work sleep disorder, then REM sleep can be quite difficult. And then if you have something uh, like narcolepsy, then maybe your REM sleep happens too fast. Yeah. So it's all the way on the opposite end. So some people actually have too much REM sleep and not enough deep sleep. Mm. Um, as far as sleep trackers, other than getting a polysomnogram, like an actually medically validated sleep study, there's no perfect way, but this kind of better kept secret is they're getting really darn good. And a lot of them are going to be FDA approved and HIPAA compliant. Just, uh, they have take home sleep studies now too, but, uh, even your, you know, your regular Fitbit or BioStrap or I think whoop or aura might do it as well. Yeah. They're getting really good. Yeah. I've got the, I've just recently got the new aura and fascinating yeah. to see how quickly I dropped down into deep sleep and how quickly, um, well, and the amount of REM and it definitely makes a difference when I'm not doing the right thing the day before for my REM. Yeah. So that's been good and fun to play with for sure. Yeah. Um, all right. So anti back to sort of anti-aging and obviously the diet comes into that. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, do you use peptides in your clinic? Australia, we are behind in this. So it's an exciting topic for us because we've got this to look forward to when it finally gets allowed <laughs> properly. Um, but sort of where are you using those a lot and is it anti-aging focused or do you normally use it for other things? Yeah. Um, uh, kind of as a note to preface this discussion, when a lot of people think of peptides, you know, they're thinking of BPC-157, GHK copper peptide, AOD-9604, uh, TB 500, which is uh, thymus and beta four. So a lot of people are thinking about those types of peptides. When I think about peptides, it's just a chain of amino acids between two and a couple hundred amino acids. So small proteins, your smallest peptide is L-carnitine. That's just two amino acids put together. Your next smallest is glutathione. That's just three amino acids. So teeny tiny peptides. My favorite peptide is insulin because it saves the life of every type one diabetic. Um, about a hundred years ago, we started using it. And, uh, within a year we were injected into every type one diabetic because that saved their life. Mm. And it was an experimental peptide at the time too, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, growth hormone is actually a peptide hormone. It's not a 
sterol or like a cholesterol based steroid hormone, but it's a peptide hormone. So you also have peptide hormones. So there's a lot of various types of different peptides. Then you have a subclass of your GHRHs and GHRPs, basically uh, clones of growth hormone releasing hormone that are hypothalamus uh, secretes, secretes in a pulsatile fashion that they, you know, again, the drug company just changes a couple amino acids in that peptide chain and uh, it stimulates the release of growth hormone. And then you have your GHRP, which uh, we found that it released growth hormone, but it turns out that that receptor, a G protein couple receptor is actually just the ghrelin receptor. Mm. So um, uh, yeah, I guess ghrelin's kind of a peptide hormone as well. So there's a bunch of different types in the context of Mm anti-aging. I think about your physical or cosmetic anti-aging in which I am a big fan of peptide creams because it minimizes the side effect. A lot of peptides like your, you know, your growth agonists, like any GHRP, like GHK copper peptide, which is usually made in your liver, but you make less of it as you age or your thymus in beta four, which is made in your thymus, which pretty much goes away after childhood, unless you have myasthenia gravis, those, uh, can be applied topically. So they're not going to cause increased cell turnover and they have applications for acne, even for hair loss. Um, so, uh, you know, that they're great to use. It's almost too good to be true to apply them topically where they're not absorbed systemically too much. BPC-157 is particularly popular. Mm-hmm. That's a VEGF agonist. So it's going to cause more vascularization, which is great in areas where you're not well vascularized, like uh, lots of col- uh, collagenous areas. But it's not very good if you're taking it for a long time because one of the most common anti, it's actually on the WHO's list of essential meds is called Avastin. It's a VEGF inhibitor. So it's the opposite of BPC-157 and it treats a whole bunch of different types of cancers. So um, that's kind of the the breaks. There's been a lot of other peptides that have been extremely promising. Carterine is one of them, uh, GW501516. And that one was going to be several different drug companies were developing as a diabetes and metabolic syndrome drug. But now we're like still... the evidence in my mind is not super conclusory, but according to drug companies, uh, it causes cancer. So you got to really be careful when you're talking about experimental peptides. Yeah, absolutely. And the timing and doing it right as well, because a lot of people aren't accessing these on their own um, and experimenting, not knowing how long with, with, with no protocols based on anything else other than their friend at the gym telling them what to do. Yeah, which is dangerous. Yeah. Um, that, that's very true. So there's a lot of people at the gym that are taking, it seems like BPC 157 is probably the most common one. And it's probably because a lot of those Olympic athletes that you see, like the, uh, the gymnast that had the Achilles tendon that magically healed itself in a month, which is mind blowing to me. I mean, BPC 157 works and there's a lot of application for it, but you see great results in just a week or two. Mm. And a lot of people will take it six weeks, no matter what, or 12 weeks, no matter what. And it's really needlessly exposing them to the drug, which does go systemic to some degree, even if you're injecting it locally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Timing's key, I think, with the peptides um, and using it when you need it and then optimizing everything else along the way. Um, So it then lasts, you know, having that good foundation means that you're going to get even better results. Yeah. 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 All right. I think we're almost running out of time and I think I'll talk to you about a dietary topic next time. I did want to cover carnivore, but I'll cover that next time. Um, but I wanted to just to 
uh, ask you a few little lasting questions. So what is sort of the most interesting treatments you say, you know, that as, as doctors, we're always trying to find the most amazing next coming up. You know, we get excited about things that we can use with our patients to treat. Um, anything that you're really excited about at the moment? I'm pretty excited about artificial pancreases. It's going to be uh, kind of the next artificial organ on the horizon. Um, the beta cells are usually the ones that are damaged in type one and type two diabetics because alpha cells are so much more resilient. Yeah. Alpha cells make GLP one, which is kind of like one of the new hot obesity drugs, the GLP one receptor agonist, like semaglutide, the, and they make glucagon as well, mm. but the beta cells often die. So if, you know, classic type one diabetic, no beta cells, they have antibodies against them. So no insulin and no amylin. Mm. And now we have drugs that are coming through like lots of different types of insulin, of course, but we also have an amylin called Simlin. They have proline rich variants, which are less likely to cause side effects. So pretty soon we'll have an artificial pancreas that we can give somebody instead of an insulin pump. That way they don't get that buildup of insulin resistance. Oh my goodness. Wow. Does yeah. that so pancreatic cancer, would that be something that you could take the pancreas out and put that in? Possibly so. The problem with that, and uh, they have a lot of procedures like that. They call them Whipples. So the yeah. problem with the Whipple is you take the pancreas out after a Whipple, but you take out a lot of other things as well. Usually by the time you find pancreatic cancer, because there's not a great screening test, um, down the road, there might be things like the grail cancer tests. I can't remember if it's holy grail or grail, mm. but they're kind of difficult to interpret and they're not super low with uh, false positives. So you have to do something about it imaging wise, even if it's out of pocket, if, if your grail cancer screening comes back positive. But uh, yeah, usually it's too late. Many times it metastasizes to places like the liver before it can be uh, treated with a Whipple. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And yeah, it is, it's a sad, a sad one, unfortunately. Yeah. Yep. One other thing that I saw that was particularly interesting, mm. and this might be a ways down in the future is a study on mice where they're obese mice and they treated them with leptin, which is one of the main, uh, fat or adipose brain crosstalk hormones mm -hmm. and it cured the mice of obesity. So as simple as that, just, uh, you know, a fat brain crosstalk gut brain crosstalk fecal transplants for reasons other than C. diff are particularly interesting. Um, the science is booming right now and it's extremely exciting. It just doesn't get enough press. Yeah, no, it doesn't. And that's the problem. It's the press is concentrated on other things that really not doing our world very, very much good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that is super exciting. Oh, I'll have to look out for all those research studies. So now what's, what's next for you? What's coming up for, but in your world, where are you going? Where are you headed? And where can everyone find you? That's sort of where we're, we're going now. <laughs> yeah, it's a very exciting time in my life. Um, I've been doing a lot of podcasts and social media, and uh, those will be posted on many platforms on many podcasts. My home base right now is my Instagram, which is Kyle Gillette MD. You can also follow my clinic on most platforms as well. It's called uh, Gillette Health. It's a Gillette like the razor without the E. It got shaved off because I guess it was too French about a century ago. So yeah, feel free to follow me, uh, Kyle Gillette MD or Gillette Health. Lovely, lovely. Yeah, I was going to ask you Gillette or Gillette because Australian accent also throws in a whole new range of different sayings there. Yes. <laughs> Gillette. Yeah. 
Um, lovely. Thank you so much, Kyle. Now, one last thing before you leave us. What are your daily non-negotiables for health? What do you have to do every day to keep yourself feeling really good? Yeah. When I wake up, I love having my cup of coffee. Uh, I love spending time with my boys. I have two little boys, two and eight months. Oh. I have two wolfhounds, which I like to spend time with outdoors, yeah. which is very important to me. And I like to pray and eat with my family as well. So those are my non-negotiables. Beautiful, beautiful. And thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time and I'm so happy we got to have a chat and I would be definitely keen on having a little bit more of an in-depth chat on a few other topics if you're interested. Thank you, Jody. My pleasure. It was great talking to you. Yeah, you too, Carl. See you later. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Revital Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Revital Health as well as our website, revitalhealth.com.au for upcoming podcasts, workshops and speaking events. Find out about specials happening in the clinic and all the show notes and links mentioned in the podcast. Please remember that this information discussed here is general information and it is not intended to diagnose or treat individuals. Please speak to your healthcare professional before embarking on any new treatments, lifestyle changes, medicines or supplementation to assess your suitability. Have a wonderful day and we'll see you again.